We're going to look at the passage uh, in Isaiah. So you want to turn back with me to page 611, Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7. So that's page 611. And we're going to look specifically at verses 6 and 7, just uh, two verses, and we're going to focus on them. don't know how uh, keen you are at celebrating birthdays. I think it's, uh, as I've got older, I'm less keen on celebrating birthdays. Um, but it does make us uh, wonder, doesn't it? Every time we come to a certain date, we celebrate. And we're not just celebrating the fact that uh, somebody was born on a certain day, but we're actually celebrating their life. We're celebrating all that they mean to us. And uh, Christmas isn't a celebration of Jesus' birthday. Um, he wasn't born on the 25th of December. But we are celebrating him and all that he means to us. And uh, when we look at this um, passage, these just two verses from Isaiah, you'll see that uh, it says, unto us. And really what we're going to do this evening is look at who is the us in those two verses, and could it be me? So I'm just going to read those two verses again. So Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So the context of this passage is... Uh, it's, a, it's a prophecy, really, that was spoken over two and a half thousand years ago uh, to Israel by Isaiah. And it was a real time of uncertainty for them. Um, there was uh, invaders and there was a lot of uh, oppression and there was um, prophecies that they were going to be taken into exile. And there was a lot of kind of uncertainty about what the future would be for them. And in chapter seven of the, of the same book, Isaiah, verse 14, it speaks of a promised child. It says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So this would be a sign of hope for Israel, that actually even though their whole world seemed to be falling apart, even though their kingdom was falling apart, even though they were taken into exile and kind of lost everything that they'd come to put their security in, that actually the Lord had not abandoned them, that actually he would send someone who would reign once again over them that actually there was hope, even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, and that he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then you'll see in in this passage that we're looking at, it goes on to just describe a bit more about who that child is. So you see uh, the first uh, thing in verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now, it wasn't just that there would be a baby for the immediate parents. You know, when a a baby uh, is born, then the parents can say, you know, unto us a child is born. And uh, obviously that was going to be to a certain set of parents. But um, Israel knew when they were reading this that actually this was a a prophecy of the coming Messiah. That actually they were looking forward to somebody who would be born as a saviour to once again uh, rule and reign to be king of the Jews. So from their point of view, it was, they were reading this thinking, well, it's not just 
uh, for the parents or the immediate family that this child is going to be born, but actually the whole nation of Israel to be a saviour. But a question for us really is, was it just for Israel? Is the uh, us just Israel? Because if it was, then most of us, uh, it would have nothing to do. The child would have no impact at it. It's not for us. So I want to have a look at what was said by the angels uh, in the nativity story that you're all familiar with. Look at what the angel said to Joseph in Matthew 1, 21 to 23. And she will bring forth a son, and you'll, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So when the angels were uh, just sort of comforting and reassuring Joseph about the, uh, the baby that Mary was going to have, the angel referred back to this passage from Isaiah and said, actually, don't worry, because this child is going to be that promised uh, Messiah. Look at what the angels said to the shepherds in Luke 2, verse 11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a saviour who is Christ the Lord. You see, this uh, passage from Isaiah is not just referring to a baby that would be born into obscurity or maybe make a, a small impact two and a half thousand years ago in Israel. It wasn't just referring to uh, a saviour for the Jewish nation, but was actually referring to Jesus, who would be born 600-odd years after that. That actually, yes, there would be a child born, there would be a son given, and his name would be Jesus. And it wouldn't just be his parents or immediate family that could say unto us. It wouldn't just be Israel that could say unto us. It would be all of us here and all those that trust in his name. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You think, well, maybe that's just a repetition, or maybe it's just a little bit extra to say that it would be a male child. But it's interesting when you put it together with John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, a child was born, but the eternal son of God was given for us. See, Jesus was a son even before he was born. He's eternally the son of God the second person of the Trinity, given for us. Why? Well, look in verse 6 as we go on, and the government will be on his shoulders. And again, we have to ask our question of the government of what? You know, it was obvious that the baby Jesus was born, um, born into obscurity, but not for obscurity, that actually he was born to reign, to take the burden of responsibility and authority. But again, the question is to reign over who? To reign over what? Over Israel? Well, yes. Matthew 2, 2, the wise men come and say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? But just Israel? No. The whole of heaven and earth. Look at Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Look at Philippians 2, 9 to 11. God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, 
and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This was not just a baby who had come to reign as a a small-time politician or even the king of one country, but this was a, a baby who was born to reign over the whole of heaven and earth. Revelation 11, 15 says, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. See, Jesus was born not just king of the Jews, but king of heaven, king of earth, judge and lord of all. So that really uh, makes us, warrants the question, a really important question, that who is this Jesus? If the Bible says that a baby born 2,000 years ago in a manger in Bethlehem is the king of kings and lord of lords, then that requires a response, doesn't it? We can't just kind of ignore that and think, well, you know, that was just somebody uh, born a long time ago that's got no impact on me. Especially if that person is coming again. Especially if that person is the one that we'll have to give account to, who we will have to bow the knee, who will be the judge of our lives. So who is this Jesus? What right does he have to reign? What right has he got to reign over a nation or over the world? What right has he got to reign over my life? What say has he got in how I live? Well, I think the rest of uh, chapter uh, verses 6 and 7 really helps us to understand that. And the first thing we can do is look at the names which are given to him. So yes, we know that his name is Jesus. We know that he'll be called Emmanuel. But it also says his name will be called Wonderful. Now, I'm guessing there's many a a mother or father has looked at a baby and, and described them as wonderful. But this word is an amazing word in the Bible because it's used for the mind sort of blowing awesome acts of God. This is not just, oh, you know, a a special person or whatever. This is referring to somebody who uh, embodies the mysteries and the power and the wonder of God himself. You know, this is no ordinary child. The second uh, name he's given is counsellor. So this is someone who is wise. This is someone who knows the truth. This is someone who can apply it to situations. It's not just somebody who sits in a... Um, a university somewhere thinking wonderful thoughts. A counsellor is somebody that can actually uh, help people to understand the truth of life and apply it to them. This is who that child would be. And look at John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. <clears throat> you see, Jesus isn't, didn't just say, I know the truth or I know a lot. He said, I am the truth. And that's a massive claim if you think about it. Now, even the the greatest scholar in the greatest university would never claim to be truth itself. And as I said before, you know, Jesus makes so many claims in his life that either he was deluded or he was a deceiver, just trying to uh, manipulate people, or he was who he said he was. There is no kind of option of him just being a good teacher or a nice person because the claims that he makes... Would, would, I say, even make him deluded or dangerous. So we have to take what he says seriously. We can't just think, well, that's another good philosopher uh, like so many philosophers before him. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And again, how offensive, in a sense, if that's not true, to claim that you are the only way that somebody could have access to God himself. But again, we have to think clearly, carefully about that claim. 
He also understands not just life in general, not just kind of the general human condition, but he also claims to know each of us individually. And again, it's impossible for a human being to know the hearts and the minds and the secret thoughts of every person. But in John 2, 24 to 25, it says he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of men, for he knew what was in man. Isn't that incredible? This is somebody who was born in a manger in obscurity, but by the time he was an adult, could actually see into the hearts and minds of human beings. He knew each person that he came into contact with. Why? Well, look at what it says next. His name shall be Mighty God. And again, it's easy just to kind of read it and gloss over it, but think about what it's saying, that the baby born to human parents would be mighty God. How can that be? How can a baby born in the flesh be called mighty God? We would never do it, would we? It would be blasphemy to find a baby and look at them and say, this is mighty God. The only way that that's possible is if that baby has two natures, that he's fully God and fully human. He eternally existed, but took on flesh to be born in that manger. Colossians 2, 9 says, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Titus 2.13 refers to Jesus as our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.8, to the Son, Jesus, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And again, it's a massive claim, isn't it? And I think if you're new to Christianity, if you're seeking for yourself, we're not just here to follow a great philosopher or a prophet. We're not just here to kind of pledge allegiance to a great leader. We're actually here to worship someone who is almighty God. But someone who was born 2,000 years ago and lived physically on this earth. Look at his next name, Everlasting Father. Now, I don't think here Isaiah is uh, it's not kind of a, a treaty on the Trinity. He's not kind of saying that uh, Jesus and God the Father are the same. We know from the whole council of God's word that God is one, but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's not saying that Jesus and the Father are the same. But what he is saying is that Jesus has the same qualities as the Father, that they are one, they are united. He's also saying that Jesus is the Father in terms of the Father of creation. He's the Father of the whole universe. Colossians 1, 15 to 18 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, Listen to this, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. Now that was written by somebody who was around at the same time as Jesus, who actually had a vision and met Jesus on the road, whose life was totally Transformed. It was written to people who would have met and spent time with Jesus. Look at the claim that he's saying, that all things were created by him, for him. In him, all things consist. And again, it's an amazing claim for us to read all these thousands of years later. But how incredible for those people who actually lived with him, who ate with him, who spent time with him, to have that revelation that actually before any of the earth existed, he existed. And then actually it was for him that the earth was created and that he, it was created by him, for him. 
What an incredible revelation that the early disciples had of who Jesus was. They also knew that he had the same character as God the Father. You know, there is no kind of, oh, God the Father is one way, he's a really harsh one that we hear about in the Old Testament, and then Jesus is all lovey-dovey and he's just kind. No, they have the same character. John 10, 30, I and my Father are one. John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You know, the reason that that baby born in a manger ended up those years later crucified on a cross was because he claimed to be God. And the Jews knew that, the religious leaders at the time, there was no mistaking what he was saying. He was claiming to be one with God. But also, I think uh, Isaiah is referring to the fact that he has a father-like care for his people. So I know everybody's experiences as a father are different, and some people have had a, a terrible experience of a, an unloving or a distant or even abusive father. But actually, the idea of a, a father-like care is someone who is, is tender and caring, who... Yes, they will encourage on and they will kind of, uh, you know, ruffle the nest so that they gain independence. But it's actually somebody who really cares for their child and who will um, lead them on and do what's best for them uh, throughout their whole life. You know, that father-like care doesn't just stop when the child becomes an adult. Look what Jesus said in John 10, 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Why is he called everlasting father? Because he was the creator of all things. He's the father of the universe. He's called everlasting father because he and the father are one. He has the same character as God the father. But he's also called everlasting father because... Those who are his, he, ta- he cares for them as a shepherd cares for his sheep. The next name we find is Prince of Peace. And again, we find that in verse 6. And it's the final kind of name that we see in verse 6. Now, Jesus was very clear that he wouldn't usher in a kind of immediate peace. The Jews at the time, and I think the disciples thought that when he went to Jerusalem, what was going to happen is uh, some amazing, powerful act of God that would set him up as the, uh, the king of kings, as the Messiah, and kind of kick out the Romans and establish the earthly Jewish kingdom. And actually, he was very clear that that's not going to happen. The reason I'm going to Jerusalem is that I, I'm actually going there to die, to die on that cross. And he was also very clear that even though he would be uh, raised again and ascend into heaven, that there would be a period, a lengthy period, between that and his return to reign. And you see that in the parable of the miners in Luke 19. He was very clear that he was a king, but he was going away and there would be a period before he returned. So Jesus didn't uh, pretend, he didn't offer people at the time an immediate peace. But he is the Prince of Peace. And when he comes again, and he will come again, he will come again to establish that peace. He will have complete victory over his enemies and he will start a, a new heaven and a new earth in which there are no tears, no crying. Look at Revelation 21, three to four. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. And there was a little hint of that, a shadow, if you noticed it in our reading Earlier on, if you go back to verse 5 
of uh, Isaiah 9. It says, For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. This was Israel that had been involved in a lot of battles and difficulties, but there is a prophecy that one day all of those blood-stained clothes, all of those uh, sandals that have been used in battle will be burnt up because there'd be no need of them ever again. But until that time, Jesus was very clear that there wouldn't be peace, that actually there would be a lot of conflict and difficulty until he comes again. So sometimes people think, well, you know, if God is so um, loving, then why doesn't he just uh, deal with all the evil in the world? Why are there wars? Why are there disputes and difficulties? The reason is because he is, he's, he, there is a day of judgment coming. There is a day when he will deal with all of those things. But we're now in that interim period. And it's a period of grace because it's a period where people uh, can respond to the gospel. You know, the good news is going out that you can turn from your sin. That a day of judgment is coming but actually you can do something now which will mean that when that day comes, all your sins are forgiven. Every wrong thing you do will be wiped clean. And that actually when the judge comes, when that day of vengeance and wrath comes, that you will be found innocent. Not because of who you are, because you're a good person or you've done the right things, but because Jesus paid for it all. He died the death on that cross to pay for the wrong we've done. So Jesus was quite clear that actually there would be difficulties, there would be pain and suffering in this interim period. That yes, he was the Prince of Peace, but that peace wouldn't come uh, for everybody uh, uh, immediately. Look at Matthew 24, verses 6 to 13. And you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrow. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my, for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the, nation, of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. What an accurate picture of life now that is. Think of that. Jesus was saying that 2,000 years ago. Don't be uh, surprised. Don't be worried where you hear of wars, rumours of wars, pestilences, famines, earthquakes, viruses, whatever it is. Don't be surprised. These things must happen. But the end is not yet. Don't be even surprised when people hate you. When you go from being seen as can have upright, uh, moral people to be despised as immoral. That those who are holding kind of traditional views that are outdated and, uh, you know, people hate because you're so exclusive. You know, who do you think you are to say that yours is the right way and everyone else is wrong? Don't be surprised when those times happen. There will not be peace in that sense, even for God's people in this period before he comes again. But he has brought peace. Brought not just in terms of brought, but brought, bought without the, the R. He bought a peace. He paid the cost for our peace, for those who trust in him, to have peace with God. You know, even we might be going through all sorts of trials as, you know, as, as the world, as groups of people, or even individuals. We might be going through all sorts of difficult circumstances. But if we know and trust in the Lord Jesus, we can have a peace, even in the midst of that. 
We have a peace between us and God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing that we, just normal human beings, can have peace with God? That God looks at us and loves us, that there isn't that, uh, uh, we're not enemies of God. Even though we're not perfect, you know, we still sin, we still do stuff wrong. That God doesn't see us as enemies, but as friends and as sons, we have peace with eternal God. Why? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. But also that we can have a peace, we can know a peace that passes all understanding, even in the midst of our hardships. Philippians 4, 6-7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I don't know whether you've ever experienced that. I'm guessing that you have. Even in the midst of uh, real difficult situations where everything seems to be unravelling or going wrong, where there's obstacles that you see ahead that you just don't know how you're going to get through it when you're tired and you're weak, and even maybe you're doubting your own faith. And all you're doing is you're looking at the storms of life and panicking. But then you stop and you look up and maybe you read the Bible or sing a a chorus or you just remember the promises of God and this incredible peace comes that just seems to be beyond all understanding. You just, it doesn't, you can't understand why you should feel such peace in the midst of the storm. And that's because of what Jesus has done. He's brought that for us, that even in this difficult day that we live in, we can still know peace, a peace that passes all understanding. So why did that baby come? Why did Jesus come to earth as a baby in a manger? Why did the Son of Almighty God take human flesh? Well, we see that in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. When the angel Gabriel Uh, appeared to Mary to tell her the wonderful news that she would be carrying the Lord Jesus, it made reference to uh, the throne of David. Because David was promised in uh, 2 Samuel 7, 16, God promised David, your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And actually Jesus came to fulfill that promise. Luke 1, 31 to 33, Gabriel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Why? Because Jesus is not just talking about an earthly kingdom where one king dies and then they're succeeded, and that dies and they're succeeded. No. Jesus, when he died and rose Uh, to heaven. He was crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He became King forever from the throne of David. How did he do that? Well, before he ascended into glory, he had to go through the cross. There was a big issue that needed dealing with in order for us to be reconciled with God, and that was the issue of our sin. And the Bible is very clear that actually none of us could deal with that ourselves. If God was going to bring a, a, build a kingdom of his people, reconcile to him, at peace with him, then it wasn't something that we can do. No matter how hard we try, not about believing the right things and following philosophies or going to a university and learning loads of stuff, it's not about following a set of rules. 
that actually, although we can be better people and we could try and improve ourselves, we would never, ever be perfect. We would never be able to sort out the problem of our sin. Why? Because sin is not just something we do. It's a state that we're born into. We have to be born again into righteousness. And that's something that only God can do. Listen to Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. The same book, but a few chapters later. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why was Jesus born in a manger in obscurity? Because he had to live that human life in our place. He lived his life on our behalf. That perfect life. Uh, that needed to be lived, that we can't live because we sin every day. He lived it for us so that when he went to the cross, he wasn't paying for his own sins. He wasn't being punished for the wrong he did. He took on our sins. He became sin for us and he paid the price for us. He was born in a stable. He was, uh, became a carpenter. He lived all of those years so that he could become our substitute to die in our place. Why? Because that punishment that should have been ours was placed on him. The righteousness that was his was exchanged and given to us. We were reconciled and have peace with God. And those who trust in him, in his person, in his work, those who acknowledge who Jesus is, that he's not just any old uh, person, but he is the son of God. Those who trust in the work that he did, that when he died on that cross, he wasn't just dying uh, for something he'd done wrong. When we believe that through faith, we become sons of his eternal kingdom. You know, he said that the government and peace, there will be no end. He's come to order and establish the throne of David with justice and judgment for all time. How did he do it? Through his death on the cross. 1 Peter 2, 9, 10 says, But you, us, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Isn't that amazing that when we trust in the person and the work of Jesus, then all that, uh, all that he did for us is credited to our account. All that we've done wrong was credited to him so that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be reconciled to God through him. How does that happen? Well, I'm so grateful that it's not about me. Look at the last part of verse seven. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform that. I love that bit because I know that if it was to do with me, if I had to set, uh, follow a set of rules or know some stuff and study or whatever it is to try and be good enough, I would never do it. But Lord has done it himself. All that is necessary for our salvation, all that is necessary to take us from darkness to light, from hell to heaven, all that's necessary to give us peace and joy forever has been accomplished by God himself. And his zeal, his passion, his enthusiasm, his power has done it. Salvation belongs to him and he's the only one that can grant it and it's a gift to us through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not that of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 1, 4 says, He chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So what do we say in conclusion? John 1, 10, 14 says, He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this evening, can you join me in saying, unto me a child is born, unto me a son is given? Can you make it personal? Do you see his glory? Do you know him? Do you know in your heart that he's wonderful, that he's counsellor? that he's mighty God, everlasting Father, that he's Prince of Peace, that he's the only way for our sins to be forgiven and to have that reconciliation with God. He's the only way to get into heaven. Do you receive him as your only saviour, judge, Lord and King? Have you been born again, born of God? If so, then you have much to rejoice about this Christmas. You know, this should be a period where our spirits are lifted, even in the midst of whatever's going on, to say that we have got the greatest gift, we found the greatest prize, and that's Jesus himself. You know, what peace, what joy, what hope that gives us, even in the dark world that we're living in. If you don't know that, if you can't say, unto me a son is given, then I pray, my prayer really is that today, will be that day where that great light of revelation pierces your darkness. Hear the words of our final hymn, how silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. Amen.